Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. If you've always wanted to visit the battlefields of Gallipoli, and if you're into military history, you really should do that, I've got a great opportunity for you. Coming up in September 2020, we've got the Matt McLaughlin Signature Tour. Now, this is a type of tour we launched in 2019, and basically it's the only tour that I personally escort. So in 2019, we went to the Western Front, and in 2020, we're going to Gallipoli. It's going to be absolutely extraordinary. We are going to walk the ground as the Anzacs did. And as a special bonus, it's not just going to be me escorting this tour. We are also going to have the one and only Mr. Peter Hart, the historian from the Imperial War Museum that you would know from past episodes of this podcast, one of our most popular contributors. He knows Gallipoli better than anyone else, so he and I are going to be escorting this very special tour. So it's going to be brilliant. We'd love to see you there. It's really limited. We're only going to have 20 or 25 passengers on this tour, uh, and it's been on sale for a couple of months and it's selling really strongly so there's not many places left if you would love to explore gallipoli in the company of two historians who know it and live the story of gallipoli there's no better opportunity this is a unique tour we're not going to run it again if we do it will be many years in the future so don't miss this opportunity if you want to come to gallipoli and walk the ground with us so it departs on the 16th of september 2020 from istanbul we spent some time in istanbul and then we're going to head down to the peninsula and bring your walking shoes because we are going to get off the beaten track there's hidden paths there's trenches that have been revealed we're going to walk the ridges and the gullies just like the anzacs did and we're going to get a unique perspective on this absolutely wonderful battlefield i love gallipoli i can't wait to get back there come with me come on the matt mclaughlin signature tour with the special guest peter hart departs as i said 16 september 2020 from istanbul for details go to battlefields.com.au a living history production this is the living history podcast broadcasting live across the airwaves Hello podcasters, welcome to Living History. While we are taking our brief hiatus during January ahead of putting some fantastic content together in February onwards, I thought rather than leave you with nothing to listen to at all, why don't we revisit some of the most popular episodes from 2019? And we're going to kick off this week with one that was a real privilege for me. As part of our moon landing special, I got to interview Charlie Duke, one of only four men left alive who have has walked 
on the moon. What an extraordinary privilege to speak to him. I interviewed him from his home in Texas, and it was really just one of the most remarkable 45 minutes of my life. It was wonderful to speak with him. It was also one of our most popular episodes of 2019. And so I'd like to share that with you again. Here is my interview with Apollo astronaut Charlie Duke. Charlie, thank you very much for joining us on Living History. It's my pleasure. Uh, enjoy uh, being in Australia and I uh, look forward to coming again next year. We look forward to seeing you out here. Now, the moon landing was 50 years ago. Does it feel that long to you? Uh, not really, uh, but uh, it's you look at all of the water over the dam, if you will, of 12 moonwalkers, only four of us left alive, and uh, a lot of the other crewmen have passed on, and uh, so you really think about it it's been a long time and but it to me personally it doesn't feel like that long well, you started your career uh, in the air force as a fighter pilot and a test pilot was flying something you always wanted to do uh, not really uh i grew up in a very small town in south carolina and there weren't many airplanes around uh when i was a kid i got to the naval i wanted to serve my country though so i got to the naval academy uh, and there, uh, I fell in love with airplanes. Uh, I had a, the, the Navy had some, uh, pre-World War II, uh, seaplanes that they took every midshipman up in for three rides and, uh, you know, open cockpit by wing five fabric covered planes. And I, I just loved it. So I said, that's what I want to do is, uh, is uh, be a, uh, a pilot. And back then, you you had a choice, uh, naval aviation or Air Force. Uh, there wasn't an Air Force Academy back when I graduated in 1957. So uh, uh, I chose the Air Force, and uh, it was the right decision for me. What was, the, uh, what was your favorite aircraft that you flew in during your Air Force career? Probably, uh, it depends on the mission. Uh, in Germany for three years, I was a fighter interceptor pilot. And the last two years we flew the F-102, which was a really good, uh, interceptor. It had, uh, missiles uh, internal and uh, good radar. Uh, we sat alert, uh, and scrambled on five minute notice and, uh, on unidentified, uh, things coming across the, uh, then the Iron Curtain, uh, and so it was very dramatic. And uh, I love flying instruments, and uh, we flew in all kinds of weather. So that was a nice airplane. And then when I became a test pilot uh, at test pilot school, we had the uh, F one hundred four Starfighter, and that was really interesting. Uh, we flew it uh, two really good missions. One was a zoom maneuver, we called it, and uh, you could get it max speed at 35,000 feet and pull up and uh, just let it go, and it'd get to 100,000 feet. And it was really, uh, uh, really exciting. And then we had another mission called uh, low, low Lift to Drag. It was a steep landing approaches like the space shuttle ended up doing. So uh, that was probably my favorite airplane at uh, test pilot school. And how did you make the transition from Air Force to the space program? Well, I was still, uh, when I was at test pilot school, I graduated in uh, August of 1965. 
And in September, I saw an article in the paper that says NASA is having another astronaut selection, and it listed the criteria, and I filled every one of the criteria. So uh, I had to ask my boss, I said, how do I apply? And so anyway, we found out, and I applied, and, and uh, I got selected. So uh, I was still on active duty in the Air Force uh, when I went to NASA. So I, I was a, most of us were active duty military, but we never wore our uniforms. We uh, we always had civilian clothes on since NASA is a civilian agency. Was this in 1966 you joined NASA? That's correct. In April uh, 66, there were 19 of us selected. Uh, three in my test pilot school class uh, were selected. So, and we all got to go to the moon. Uh, I wasn't a moon. They were. I was the only moonwalker. But uh, the two of the, the other two guys got to be what's called command module pilots. One on Apollo fifteen. One on Apollo fourteen. Just extraordinary. Was there a feeling at this stage, Charlie, that President Kennedy's deadline that he'd set for walking on the moon at the end of the decade was there a feeling that this was going to be met by the people involved in the program? Uh, no question. I thought uh, we got there and uh, we were well moving well along. There were some hiccups, if you will, with the um, uh, spacecraft, uh, both the lunar module and the command module. But in January 67, uh, we had this tragic accident where the crew was killed in a test uh, in the spacecraft. And uh, that was a real shock and a real uh, showstopper, if you will, for the program. But instead of giving up, NASA uh, applied all of its resources. The astronaut office says, uh, uh, we're not giving up. Uh, we mourned our uh, compatriots, and then we went to work, uh, doubled our effort uh, to uh, make sure we uh, finished by uh, the end of 1969. Eighteen months later, uh, a little bit more, October of 1968, uh, uh, we had our first uh, uh, Apollo uh, command module mission, uh, and that was Earth orbit to check out the vehicle. Uh, then w- the next mission was two months later, uh, or thereabouts, uh, in December, Apollo 8 went to the moon, uh, which I think was probably one of the boldest, riskiest missions NASA, NASA ever approved. Because once they launched to the moon, uh, they were on their own. everything had to work, or they were not going to make it. And it's only the second mission on the spacecraft and the first mission where people were on the Saturn rocket, and, but everything worked great. And uh, so we were on our way. And, you know, uh, then uh, seven months later, uh, in July next year, we landed uh, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin on the moon. So we accomplished the goal with uh, uh, five months to spare. You mentioned that um, terribly tragic fire on Apollo 1 that killed astronauts Grissom, Chaffee and White. I've heard other people involved in the, uh, in the Apollo program say that in, in spite of that huge price to pay, in some ways it was a turning point for the good because that changed everyone's attitude about safety and about how 
uh, how that program should operate. Did did you feel that was the case after that terrible accident? Uh, no question. Uh, it uh, we started focusing on quality control. We uh, had a uh, a very intensive review of our command module, and we ended up changing the hatch, uh, changing some of the test procedures, uh, changing the escape routes uh, off the launch pad. Uh, and so, uh, it, it turned out to be, uh, a, a good for the program at the expense of, uh, the Apollo one crew, uh, no question, uh, NASA, uh, got more safety concerts and also, uh, quality control. You mentioned the other astronauts that you were on the program with. What was your relationship like with those other astronauts? Other astronauts, because you're all, you know, high achieving military men. Was there a rivalry amongst the astronauts, or was there just a feeling that we're all teammates and we're all in this together? I would say the latter that we're all teammates and we're in it together. Uh, we were, uh, I guess, competing for a certain number of slots, but there was no way to really compete uh you just uh, did your job that you were assigned and you if you weren't on a crew you had additional duties uh not only were you training uh in geology and systems uh nasa how how nasa worked uh you were learning all of that stuff and and so out of your additional duty, uh, people started getting selected. Uh, there was uh, there had been 54 astronauts selected, and uh, from before uh, the fire at Kennedy until uh, that next summer, we had uh, five other astronauts killed in. Um, airplane accidents and an automobile accident and then john glenn had retired scott carpenter retired we had people medically grounded so the 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 cadre of astronauts available to flight for flight was like around 42 to 44 i'd have to count up exactly but that number so we were all in the mix uh but nobody knew what you had to do to get a flight there was no uh, test, uh, no fill in the blanks. Uh, you do this and you get a flight. You just did your job to the best of your ability and uh, hope for the best. And uh, so uh, I think that's what happened in my case. I was uh, a support on Apollo 10, ended up in mission control. We had a great flight. Uh, I was mission control on Apollo 11. Uh, during the landing, and and after that, uh, I was put on a backup crew for Apollo 13, which meant back then, from backup crew to flight crew was three flights later. So that's what happened. I I flew on Apollo uh, 16. So Apollo 11, the the famous one, we're celebrating 50 years uh, this year. 
tell us about your involvement in that because you were Capcom, weren't you? The capsule communicator uh, in Mission Control during that landing. So everyone would recognise your voice even from this podcast because those famous words that will live on in history, you were the voice from Mission Control in Houston. What was what was it like in that, uh, particularly that 13 minutes, that descent when they, when they when they began their descent to the lunar surface? What was the atmosphere like in Mission Control during that 13 minutes? I think it was confident tension. <laughs> uh, it got more and more tense as we continued to descent because these problems kept arising. There were four that I remember that were could have been showstoppers, really. First one was the communications. Uh, we kept having communication drop out, and one of the mission rules was after let's say 30 seconds without data, you were going to, you were supposed to call on a board. So we kept losing data, but we regained it. And then we'd lose it again. This was early on in the descent. Uh, We finally got that figured out. And then we started having computer overloads, uh, alarms. And uh, when I saw that, I, my heart basically stopped and said, we're not going, we're losing the computer you needed a computer to land according to the mission rules, uh, so it was going to be an abort. But the flight controllers in charge of the computer gave a, a positive response, we're go. And so we kept having these alarms, but the computer kept doing its job, which was uh, guiding the spacecraft and controlling the spacecraft and flying the trajectory. And so it was doing everything it needed to do, but it was dropping off some of the uh, some of the task at the end of its compute cycle that it couldn't get through, and so it says that's overload. But the, what it was dropping off wasn't really that important. Uh, so we continued. Uh, then we had, uh, you can imagine, the uh, tension was really high. Everybody was focused on their consoles, listening. We gave a go for uh, at pitchover, which was like 7,000 feet above the surface. And uh, Neil saw the f- surface for the first time and realized the trajectory was wrong and he was going into a, a wrong place. Uh, so uh, he had to level off and fly over this boulder field, if you will. Well, that resulted in minimum fuel. Uh, it took a lot of extra fuel. And so as he starts down, the tension was out through the roof in mission control and uh, very quiet except for the propulsion uh, controller. And he said, uh, 60 seconds flight. Well, that call what that meant to the crew was they had 60 seconds to land or we would call an abort mission control. Well, we called uh, Eagle 60, uh, 30 seconds. And they still went on the ground, but they were close. Uh, and we could hear Buzz Aldrin say, uh, picking up dust, uh, 30 feet, uh, down two or whatever it was. And, uh, then, uh, after that 30 second call, according to my stopwatch, 13 seconds later, uh, we heard from the crew contact engine stop. So we never got to the abort call and with, basically 17 seconds before an abort call, uh, we landed. So it was a great sigh of relief. And, uh, and Neil Armstrong very calmly a few seconds later said, uh, 
Houston, Tranquility Base here, the Eagle has landed. Well, if you listen carefully to my transmission back, I couldn't even, I was so excited, I couldn't even say Tranquility. It came out twang. But I corrected myself and said, Roger, twank, uh, Tranquility, we copy you on the ground. Tranquility Base here, the Eagle has landed. Roger, twank, Tranquility, we copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. And uh, so that was uh, uh, the, uh, the truth, uh, literally uh, holding our breath. And uh, so we made it. Had we gotten to the abort call at the altitude they were above the moon, uh, Neil Armstrong had, a, had the prerogative to continue the landing. Uh, that was uh, we because that abort call was really with four percent fuel remaining, if I recall, and so that was enough to bring you down from twenty or thirty feet uh, to a successful landing. Uh, fortunately, we never had to make that decision, and we landed within limits and within mission rules. You describe all the problems that Apollo Eleven was having as it came in, and from the accounts that I've read and from what I've seen about it. Um, it was very difficult. It was, you know, things weren't quite going to plan. How good a job did Neil Armstrong do in landing that spacecraft in those difficult conditions? Uh, I would say I'd give him uh, a grade of 100. Uh, he did great uh, managing to level off and fly over inhospitable uh, terrain to find a place that looked uh, satisfactory he made the decision, started down. It was just cool, uh, control, and Buzz Aldrin also. But I think Neil was a perfect choice uh, to be the, fr- the commander of the first attempt. He was uh, one of our most experienced test pilots uh, and uh, had a lot of experience. He proved his mettle on a Gemini 8, which was out of control due to a, a a, a thruster stuck on it. He managed to recover that vehicle and land safely. So I was pleased to see him make the first attempt, but there was no guarantee that Apollo 11 would be the first attempt. If Apollo 10 didn't go well, then they would have probably changed the flight plan and had another test flight. And so Apollo 12 would have been the first uh, attempt. But Apollo 10 went so well, it, it, the commitment was, let's go land this thing. And uh, he, he did an uh, uh, incredible job, both of them. A couple of flights later, we had, again, probably the, the, the second most famous of the Apollo uh, missions with Apollo 13. And you were fairly closely involved in that mission as well, weren't you? And especially once things started to go wrong on Apollo 13. I sure was. The back, we were the backup crew. And if you recall, before the launch, a week or so, I caught the measles and exposed everybody to the measles. And on the backup crew and the prime crew, everybody had had the measles except Ken Mattingly. So he, the doctor said, well, he could get the measles at the moon. So there was a big discussion between uh, flight medicine and the flight operations and it was decided to remove Ken Mattingly and uh, substitute Jack Schweikert, who we I had trained with. And then when the 
accident occurred when they lost the oxygen. Uh, Mattingly, myself, and John Young uh, went to Mission Control, and we were there for 35 hours uh, working diligently to uh, develop the procedures and to not only to get them on free return so they'd come back to Earth, but also to power up the lunar module and power down the command module. So John and I were working on the power up and uh, Mattingly was working on the power down. And so we worked uh, tirelessly and uh, it, we were coming back from the moon before I got comfortable that, uh, that we were really going to make it. Uh, and uh, everybody, I breathed a sigh of relief that we were going to have enough consumables, water and oxygen and, and all of those things, electrical power, uh, those things that could run out before we returned. But uh, they didn't because we had the right procedures of power up, power down. Was there a feeling during that time that you were hoping against hope, you know, that there was really no chance to get them home, but you do what you can? Or was everyone just determined, no, we're going to do this, we're going to bring them back? I think the first couple of hours, there was, I wouldn't say a hopelessness, but we were in a dire situation. And we got to do something quick to make sure uh, this thing lasts. And uh, the lunar module was in really good shape, but we had to power it up. And now we had a lunar module. The, that lunar module was, uh, was designed for two guys for three days. Now we got three, di- three guys for four days. How do you make it last? That was the big effort for the first 30 or 40 hours uh, after the accident. And as the longer we went in the recovery time, the more confident everybody became uh, that we're going to have enough stuff. And I guess it was about a few hours after we uh, rounded the moon and started home, uh, which still was probably 70 hours to go. Uh, I was con- confident that if mission control didn't make a mistake and the crew didn't make a major mistake, we had enough stuff, oxygen, electrical power, water, uh, to get us back. And so uh, things uh, then developed into survival mode for the crew and for us. Uh, and But we managed it right. And uh, the last uh, few hours before reentry, we had never powered down a command module. And it was not designed to power down. And so is it going to power up right? And so... You saw Power 13, that maddeningly powering up that command module with minimum power usage uh, was really critical. And they, uh, they, he and all the engineers did a fantastic job. You mentioned that movie, Charlie, Apollo 13. Was that a fairly accurate representation of what was happening during those days? It's probably one of the best space movies I've seen about Apollo. Tom Hanks and... Uh, Ron Howard were a stickler for uh, uh, accuracy, and um, the and so it was. I thought it was real good, really accurate as far as the technical side goes. Uh, one thing, of course, was that when he, they were in mission control in a movie, they were always the same people, but that's not true. Uh, they we cycle crews, uh, flight 
flight uh, flight control crews through on a regular basis. And so there were more than those people in the movie that were responsible for the recovery. Uh, and But the spacecraft was, uh, and all of the space uh, uh, flight scenes were actually zero gravity. They were in the back of the, what we call the vomit comet, uh, making this movie. And there were a few little technical glitches, but it was not anything important. And in fact, a couple of the glitches, uh, what they had technically made it easier for the audience who were not technical to understand what was going on. Moving forward to your mission where you walked on the moon, Apollo 16. Um, I mean, gee, where do we begin? I, I won't ask you anything as inane as what was it like to walk on the moon, because I'm sure you've answered that question many times. But what I'm interested in is, did all the training you'd done, all the communication with the other astronauts who'd been to the moon, all the knowledge that NASA gave you, did that prepare you for the experience of being on that massive Saturn V rocket of blasting into space and then eventually landing and walking on the moon? There's no question about it. Uh, we debriefed not just us, but every crew and every astronaut sat in on the debriefing after every mission. Uh, and uh, we spent a couple of days, if, as I recall, asking questions, and they were briefing us about this system, that system, and this needs to change, and that needs to change. Uh, we briefed, uh, we listened to every crew on the moon about uh, problems with this tool and that tool and this experiment and that experiment. And so we kept modifying things as we went along. Our geology uh, training got very specific. The simulators were uh, accurate. And so uh, we uh, certainly build on the experience on Apollo 16 from the first four landings. So ours was at the time the longest on the moon and the, the second with a car. Uh, and so it was the last three missions of, of the landings were really uh, the science bread and butter, if you will, uh, of Apollo because we were three days on the moon. Uh, and you could get a lot of science done and a lot of rock collecting. So our flight certainly build up, build on the, the, the shoulders of the other uh, four landings. Uh, we learned all about the peculiarities of the uh, Saturn rocket, that it was, uh, it, each one had a different, uh, basically, vibration signature. And when we lifted off, I was, even though I knew it was supposed to shake, uh, it was shaking so much, I thought there was something wrong. But it was just the the character of our vehicle. We were on on trajectory, mission control, your go, and John Young saying we go, and uh, you know, and so even with the shaking uh, on the first stage, uh, uh, we shut down right on schedule, and on uh, the first stage and the second two stages took us into orbit. And the third stage, we reignited and on the way to the moon. So we didn't have any problems uh, during the uh, ascent, Earth orbit phase, and then translunar injection. When we separated and turned around to retrieve the lunar module, uh, that looked like we had a fuel leak in the lunar module. There was these, uh, looked like fireflies floating away, a uh, whole lot of them, and uh 
So we took turned on the television and let Mission Control look at it. And so they we changed after we docked up and got on our way. Uh, they wanted us to go over and power up the lunar module to see if anything was leaking. And so we did, and the lunar module checked out perfectly. Uh, so we continued our mission. And we didn't find out what the hell that was until we landed on the moon. And I got outside and went around to take a picture of this area of the lunar module. And it, what it was was thermal paint peeling off. It either was applied, uh, something happened to call it all to peel off. And those flakes were just tiny bits of paint floating away. So we had a good lunar module. You mentioned that you spent three days on the moon. I, th- I think that's just extraordinary because you landed on the moon in 1972 and less than three years earlier when the first landing took place, Apollo 11, they spent less than three hours on the moon. Well, we didn't have three days outside. We had three days on the surface, but most of that was spent in the cabin, in the lunar module. We were out- actually outside a little over 20 hours, which was scheduled for us. The Apollo 11 was on the moon, I think, a little less than 24 hours. They were actually outside three hours, and uh, they only had uh, one excursion. We had three. So we, the Apollo 15, 16, and 17, designed their flight plan on the moon to have three excursions, three arrest periods. So we divided up the 72 hours into three 24-hour chunks of time. Charlie, we're all really familiar with that absolutely famous audio of the final 13 minutes of Apollo 11 when they descended onto the moon. But could you share with us your experiences on Apollo 16 on that moment when you began to descend and touch down on the moon? We had a lot of confidence that mission control tracking was accurate. Uh, The engine fired uh, precisely. Uh, we had a lot of backups to make sure that we were on the right trajectory and everything performing. Uh, we had a major problem uh, in the command module, service module. The main engine, the service propulsion system, uh, was to be fired on the backside of the moon for him to change his orbit, and we would uh, then the next hour we were scheduled to land. Uh, but he had a problem with the main engine. There was a, a con- one of the control loops was out. So now we're down to one control loop, and according to mission rules, that's an abort. Come home. Uh, so you can imagine the disappointment John and I had at that point. And, uh, but as we came around from the backside, uh, mission, we, mission control looked at the data and they said, stand by. At least they didn't say, come home right away. And uh, so it took them two orbits. And finally they said, well, we know what's wrong. We can't fix it, but here's a workaround. And uh, so now we got two systems and they said, next time around, you guys go for landing. So Yahoo, you know, <laughs> we were so excited. And uh so six hours behind schedule for us, we touched down in the Descartes Highlands. It's just such an extraordinary experience, obviously, going to the moon. You know, you're one of a handful of people who've had this incredible experience. Uh, I mean, just what, what, what parts of, of that mission really stand out for you, Charlie? What were the, the highlights, the bits that will always stay with you? Well, the liftoff in the Saturn was certainly dramatic. Uh, 
it was a huge vehicle, and uh, the first stage had a vibration about it, uh, but that was all, and then it, it performed flawlessly uh, on every mission. So that was uh, unique. Then the first view of Earth as we uh, started out to the moon was this jewel of Earth of blue and white and brown just hung up there in the blackness of space, and uh, we were uh, about 32,000 kilometers away at this point, and you could see the whole circle of the Earth. And uh, uh, out one other window, you could see the moon, but you don't, it was just, the rest of the space is just black. You, uh, with the sun shining uh, out in space, which is all the time, you don't see any stars. Uh, so you're looking out into the blackness of space, and there's the Earth hung up on nothing, and there's the moon, uh, and everything else is black except where the sun is. It's a velvety black. It feels like you could reach out and touch it. It's so vivid. What was that moment like, that first glimpse of the lunar surface as you went into lunar orbit? I mean, you were seeing the moon closer than just about any other person on Earth had ever seen it. What was that moment like when you got up close to the moon? That was another dramatic moment. Uh, we were in darkness uh, when we... Uh, inserted at, in the lunar orbit but a few minutes later we came into sunlight and the sun sunrise on the moon is dramatic because there's no atmosphere it doesn't look like sun coming up uh slowly like it does on earth where the atmosphere gets bright first and then the sun you see you on the moon it's just bang you got sunlight and long shadows very rough on the back side of the moon uh, totally different than the terrain on the front side. Uh, and then, of course, the landing, probably the most dramatic thing for me on the whole mission was the landing. Very dramatic uh, landing. Uh, you're coming into a place uh, that you really haven't seen uh, in detail. Uh, our photographs for our landing site had resolution of 15 meters. That meant things 15 meters and less you didn't see. Uh, and so you pitch over at 7,000 feet, and there's the major craters you see in your photograph you studied, like the 500 meters, uh, but the little ones that start appearing. And, man, there's a lot of craters down here, a lot of rocks. And John had to really maneuver to find a place to, uh, to set down, and he did a fantastic job. That must have been pretty special as well, the moment when you first set foot on the lunar surface. We were so excited. I was like a little kid at Christmas and birthday all rolled into one. I didn't have any fear that I was going to sink out of sight, of course. I was number 10 on the moon, so I just jumped off the ladder and uh, onto the footpad and jumped right onto the moon and started uh, uh, just having this extraordinary 72-hour experience. I felt right at home. Uh, I was excited. I was in awe. Uh, I was in wonder. The moon was probably the most dramatic terrain uh, that you could possibly imagine. Nothing like it on Earth at all. And so you're there looking at this uh, gray surface that's covered with this very, very fine dust like powder. And so everywhere you walked, you left your footprints. You looked off at the horizon, and the moon was very bright everywhere you looked. But at the horizon, it turned to instant darkness uh, since there's no uh, atmosphere. And you look up into the sky, and uh, the only object you could see was the Earth. But 
for us, the Earth was right overhead. And as you look up in your Apollo helmet, you can't see up straight up. So we couldn't see it. But the rest of the sky was just this blackness. Uh, and, uh, of course, the sun, but uh, it's so bright, you don't look at it with just the sun visors we had. They were not capable of looking strictly at the sun. It was really dramatic, uh, rough terrain, cratered, hilly, uh, just uh, a dramatic. And I kept thinking, nobody's ever been here before. I'm on the moon, and nobody's ever been here before. John and I are the first ever to explore this part of the moon. It's just extraordinary stuff, Charlie, and thank you for, for sharing those reminiscences with us. Um, just finishing up. After all these decades, why do you think it's important that we went to the moon? What, what is the legacy of this incredible operation that you were involved in? Well, as uh, President Kennedy said, it was going to challenge the uh, resources and the technology and the engineering capability of the United States. Uh, we wanted to win the space race with the Russian to restore our uh, technological leadership, if you will, in the world. And it turned out that the technologies that were uh, rooted in space in the space race uh, were uh, very important for our the economy of the United States and now the world economy. So it was a good investment, not only in our economy but uh, in our uh, you know 400,000 people uh, employed. It was a uh, a, a tremendous uh, inspiration for our country uh, to do this and to prove our mettle, if you will, that we can do this. And uh, and so that uh, carried over throughout Apollo. And I see that being birthed again. Uh, let's return to the moon. And uh, hopefully uh, within the dec- next decade, we'll return to the moon, hopefully, with a lunar lander. So uh, we're looking, our administration is uh, uh, seeking a return to the moon. And so hopefully we can get Congress to fund it uh, and that they would have the forward outlook and and the enthusiasm that uh, the administration of John Kennedy and others back in the Apollo days had. uh, And we can uh, reach out to the moon again. I think it'd be very challenging uh, there's a lot of interest in our young people uh, to study engineering and science and math and and the technologies that it takes. Uh, I see a lot of you know, I'd make a lot of talks and I, I see a lot of interest uh, in uh, our younger younger generation. In, not, in 2017, uh, NASA had another selection of astronauts and they had 18,000 applications. So there's not a a lack of interest uh, in the in the millennial generation uh, in space. Well, I think we all agree with you. There's just something so wonderful and so magical about this idea that we can go into space and 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 head to the moon. Charlie, thank you so much for sharing uh, your your memories and your your thoughts about this because it's been uh, it's been a great honor to speak to you. And um, just thank you very much for uh, for being involved. I'm glad it worked out and we had good communications. Uh, God bless and have a great day. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.